Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so would the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the day of, days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 18. Uh, We'll start from verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? Our third and final reading for today is from uh, 2 Peter, uh, chapter 3. Uh, so turn a few uh, chapters or a few books uh, to 2 Peter, uh, chapter 3, starting from verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of God. Thanks for the reading, Alan, and uh, good morning to everyone here. It's good to see everyone. there's a lot going on this weekend at church, actually. Uh, Steve and the, uh, the Youth Fellowship, the local students, are away at a retreat in Brookfield. So uh, I think they're finishing up pretty soon. You can pray for them. That's why the church is a bit emptier this uh, morning for the second service, because a lot of our young people are away. Um, we've also had just had a, a kids' church a Christmas event uh, down at the field, at the park. Um, and uh, I think about 35 kids came along. 
Uh, we also have one next week, and I believe it's already sold out or registered out. So uh, do pray for these events of our church. There's lots going on in the lead up to Christmas. Uh, my name is Ben, for those of you I haven't met. Uh, my name is also Ben, for those I have met. Uh, name's the same for both. I like saying that. It's funny, isn't it? Anyway, <coughs> uh, I'm one of the pastors here of the church, along with Steve, uh, as well as uh, Randy, who's our executive pastor, uh, who's uh, just joined us about two months ago. So if you haven't met Randy yet, uh, he's just outside, um, uh, sorting out some stuff. Now, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke over the last uh, couple of weeks. We've been picking up uh, this sermon series that we, have, we began actually a few years ago. Um, so please keep your Bibles open to Luke. We'll be looking mainly at Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. Um, and as always, there is an outline of the sermon if it helps for you to follow along. So you have received the bulletin on the way in, but if not, uh, one of our hosts can pass you a bulletin, and inside it, you will find the outline for the sermon every week. You can also download it from the church website or from our WhatsApp group. Uh, if you haven't joined it and you would like to speak to one of the hosts, then we can get you uh, connected. But like I said, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, uh, and I guess by way of reminder and by way of kind of getting us all on the same page, I know there are a few people who are visiting here today. It's great to see you. Um, it's helpful to know where we're at, isn't it? Now, we're looking at the book of Luke, and it's written by a first-century doctor uh, who went about investigating and recording down eyewitness accounts of the things that Jesus said and did when he was alive here on earth about 2,000 years ago. If you were to pick up the book of Luke and read it from the beginning, it sounds like a biography, uh, which is a kind of a modern genre term, but it's kind of like what it is, isn't it? It's, a, uh, it's like a biography of Jesus. Now, it says something that we at this church and millions of people uh, around the world today continue to read the Gospel of Luke, uh, continue to want to figure out um, what Jesus did and what he said, and more importantly, why we should bother. Now, we don't generally pick up, uh, you know, Homer's Iliad or, or a book on Caesar uh, and, and study it so closely by so many people. But for the Gospel of Luke, millions are reading this book still today. Um, we believe, of course, that the Bible is God's Word. It's the Word from our Creator God. Uh, and through the Bible, we are told that this entire world, this creation, is actually God's kingdom. And that He, he desires for all that He created, all the people that He's created, to be a part of His kingdom. Now, over the past uh, couple of weeks, as we looked at Luke 17, the chapter before, and even all the way back to Luke chapter 1, which we started a few years ago, we were seeing some really big claims being made about Jesus. Uh, this man who was born into a place in the Middle East, in Bethlehem, um, a birthday whom we will celebrate uh, in a few weeks' time. Uh, this man, Jesus, uh, the claim is that he is God's king. Uh, the claim has been made that God's kingdom has been revealed clearly to the world in human history when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He did and he said incredible things, things that only God could say and that God could do to show that he is actually the son of God, that he is God's king, God's savior, and God's uh, eternal judge or end time judge. And in response to this, this claim that Jesus makes about himself as the king and the kingdom of God, Jesus calls his audience then, the disciples and the crowds, as well as the original readers of this book and us today to put our faith in him, to treat Jesus really as the king uh, uh, of the world and especially the king of our lives, each and every one of us, that he is the king of our lives. But we have heard as well that this isn't just some kind of spiritual or intellectual fact or truth. This brings us joy. This is uh, the most meaningful thing that we can ever do because in believing in Jesus, in having Him as our King, we are connected to God. 
Right? We, we give praise to God and we give thanks to God because it is the, the full life, the life we were created to enjoy uh, and to have. And so we see in Luke the record of Jesus' first coming to bring in the kingdom of God. And we've heard last week that one day he will come back again to wrap all things up, to bring about the final judgment, uh, to right all the wrongs of this world, and to bring all who trust in him into the eternal kingdom. And so then, as we approach this passage today, the question, I guess, 2,000 years later, uh, from when this book was written, is, is this something that we can really believe? Like, can we really believe all of this, right? All the things I've just said in the last five minutes that wraps up and summarizes what Luke has been saying so far, can we really believe this? Right? Perhaps it was a lot easier for them to believe it in, the, in the, 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 those who got to see and got to hear Jesus do and say all these amazing things. Perhaps it was easy to believe for them, right? Uh, if only we could see Jesus doing and saying all these things today. But what about for us? We can't see Jesus. What about for us? for the fact that it's been almost 2,000 years since he rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven. Right? Can we believe this? Right? Do we as Christians keep trusting? Do we keep living for Jesus? Do we keep praying? Right? As this passage uh, focuses on, this is the, the specific issue of chapter 18, verse 1 to 8. Right? Do we keep praying as an expression of our trust and hope uh, in King Jesus and his return? Now, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about prayer much, uh, but I think it's fair to say that praying is a reflection of our believing, uh, right? Well, whether you pray or not shows whether you believe in the person, the God that you're praying to or not. So if you don't pray, it's because you don't believe. But if you do pray, it's because you must believe in something or someone that you're praying to. Now, what you pray about as well, isn't it? it reflects what you think God can give, but it also reflects what you think what you want, what you desire most. So the question I have to ask as we begin the sermon is, do you pray? I'll ask you, do you, do you pray? And perhaps the other question is, should you pray? Should you even bother, right? Is there someone to pray to? And if there is, then one, what, what, what do you pray for? What should you pray for? What is it that God wants to give? You see, the point, about, uh, the point of this parable that Jesus will teach in these verses is about prayer. Right, it's very clear, the point is about prayer. But the purpose of this parable is actually to help us to trust that the king will return. Right? And it is to keep praying in hope for what Jesus' return will bring. Right? The purpose is for us to trust that the king will return and to keep praying in hope of what the king's return will bring. So let me just stop talking about praying for a second and, start, and maybe pray, uh, asking that God would help us right, to hear his word and to grow our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your God who reveals yourself to us so clearly through your word. We thank you for what we've seen about Jesus uh, in, the, uh, the, in the, the previous chapters in Luke's gospel, uh, which records for us uh, so faithfully uh, the things that Jesus said and did to show that he is indeed God's son, your king, and that through his coming in history 2,000 years ago, that he brought in the kingdom of God. For us today, as we sit here, uh, in Brisbane in 2021, almost 2,000 years later, please help us uh, to be able to keep um, knowing and believing that we can trust that Jesus' second coming will also happen and that we will keep praying in hope of justice that he will bring on that day of judgment. This we pray in his name. Amen. 
Now, in one of the uh, rare occasions, as we look into chapter 18, Jesus tells us the point and the purpose of the parable before he even tells us the parable, right? Uh, so this is a great news, right? Have a look at verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1. And Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. So it sounds clear and simple enough, doesn't it? Jesus wants his disciples to keep on praying and to not lose heart, right? Which means to not be discouraged uh, or to get tired of praying. So, right, very simple eight verses, very simple point purpose. This should be just a five, ten minute sermon done, right? Well, not quite. It's going to be a little bit longer than that because it's important we work through this parable to make sure that we really hear what Jesus is saying and to really understand how it applies to us reading this 2,000 years later. So let's get into it, right? Verse 2, Jesus said, In a certain city, this is the parable here, right? In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now, we meet uh, the first character in this parable, and he is the judge. Uh, And right up front, we are told exactly what kind of guy, what kind of judge this man is, right? He is a judge who neither fears God nor... uh, He is neither someone who fears God nor respects people, which is a really weird thing for a judge to be, because if he's a judge for Israel, then he ought to be someone who upholds the law of Israel, Now, if you were to go back to chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 27, and you hear Jesus sum up the entire law of God, you probably don't need another verse reference to know what the summary of the law is, right? What is it? It is to love the Lord your God, and it is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? That summarizes the whole law. But this judge is like the complete opposite of someone who loves God and loves neighbor. He doesn't fear God, and he has no respect for man, right? This judge is the opposite of what he's supposed to be. And so then as the parable continues, we we hear the second character come into it. Poor widow, right? She comes to this kind of judge. Now, let's have a think about widows for a second, because when we hear the word widow in the Bible, it ought to trigger in us uh, something um, uh, to take note of, because the Bible is very clear of the special place that people like the widow has in God's heart, along with the orphan and the refugee and those who are oppressed. So once again, going back to the law of God in Exodus, We hear this, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. This is one of the laws from God and there are many other laws and verses and passages which describe God's heart for people like the widows and for the orphans. Why is that? Why does God seem to make a big deal out of widows and orphans and people who are oppressed? It's because they are vulnerable people. They are people who are vulnerable in this world, especially back uh, in those times. Now, in our day and age, um, especially in the societies that we come from and that we certainly live in here in Brisbane, uh, widows do actually have it pretty good. Uh, They are usually well cared for after their husband's death. Uh, There's oftentimes uh, life insurance uh, that they can fall back on. And if not, then certainly in Australia, there are lots of government supports uh, to be able to support widows. Uh, And certainly in Australia, the rights, every right of a human being, uh, every uh, every form of uh, social justice uh, is something that a widow can seek and get. Now, don't get me wrong. uh, There is surely great sadness 
and grieving to have uh, lost a husband, but financially and socially and in terms of justice, uh, there's not too much to worry about. But back in those days, back in the early times of the New Testament and the Old Testament, it was very different. Right? Women and children had very little rights back in those societies. They almost totally depended on their husbands. And if the husband were to die, then they'd have very little to fall back on financially or status-wise. And that's why God has such a great concern right, that his people looked after widows and orphans. Now, what happens to this widow in this parable? Well, the, the, the vulnerable widow has an adversary, right? uh, an opponent who was wronging her in some way. We're not told what way, but she was definitely being wronged. And she goes to the one person that she would expect right, would, would, bring, would, would stand for justice, someone who would right the wrongs that this vulnerable widow was facing. So how does the judge respond? Well, we, we hear, isn't it, in verse 4, for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear, the, fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so we see the judge, right? He responds with refusal to start with. Now, no reason is given to us as to why he refuses, but we know this guy, this judge, right? He simply doesn't care, right? He simply doesn't care. He doesn't care what God says in his law, right, about looking after widows. And as someone who has no respect for people, he certainly doesn't care about the widow and her plight. She doesn't care about what she wants. Now, this seems to go on for some while, right? Uh, it seems like the refusal happened over and over again as the woman keeps coming back over and over again, persisting in seeking for justice. But finally, something clicks in the judge's mind. It's not because he's had a change of character. In fact, he seems to be very proud of the fact, right? He's very open. I know I don't fear God, and I don't fear, and I don't respect man, people. He's very open about that. He seems to be proud about that. But what changes his mind, ultimately, is the fact that he's being bothered to death. Being kiksei, if you are Cantonese, right? right? It's like, I, I want to get this pesky cockroach out of my life, is basically what he's thinking. And so he finally gives the justice that she asks for. Now, what a terrible reason, isn't it, for a judge to do his job. Nevertheless, the persistent, vulnerable widow finally gets her justice from this godless and heartless judge. Now, what are we meant to get from this parable? Well, Jesus goes on to explain. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And here we have the classic lesser to greater argument, right? Lesser to greater argument. If and this is the lesser, a godless, heartless judge responds to a persistent widow, then how much more, right? How much more will God respond to his children? Godless, heartless judge responds to a persistent widow. How much more God will respond to his children who cry to him day and night? Now, I wonder if perhaps some of us have our view of God all wrong and all skewed. Perhaps we come today thinking that God is more like the unresponsive judge. Perhaps we think of him more that way, right? We, we, we think that, you know, I mean, God, he doesn't really feel like he's there. He, he's certainly not there for me. 
It seems that when I pray, he doesn't listen. He certainly doesn't answer in the way that I want. Perhaps it's to do with um, life circumstances or previous experiences or, or something happened in church, something we've read or something we have, some thoughts we've got, but we, we started to doubt whether God is good and whether God loves me and whether God is willing right, to listen to me and to answer my prayers. I wonder perhaps if that's the kind of view of God that we have as we come here today. And then the question then is, what is God really like, though? Perhaps from our experience and our thoughts, we have a certain view of God. Well, what is God really like? Now, one of God's greatest gifts to us, I believe, is His revelation. His, the fact that He discloses, He tells us right, who He is and what He's done. Right, we don't have to make it up. We don't have to guess. Well, one of my, the, 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 the best things as a, uh, uh, as a preacher and as a Christian for me, I believe, is that I don't have to try and figure God out on my own. I don't have to go and invent, you know, um, stories. I don't have to try to interpret vague experiences and mystical this and that's. Because I have the Word of God who tells me who God is and what He's done. And the Bible tells me that God is the Creator, right, who sovereignly and lovingly provides pouring out common grace to all sinners and saints alike. We see in this word an utter commitment to His children, even though we keep turning our backs on God, keep rebelling against Him in all kinds of ways. We see a God who keeps on making promises after promises after promises of saving and bringing about justice and then fulfilling them. We see in the Word of God His unfailing love, His amazing grace, His overflowing mercy all the way through the Old Testament and especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we've been looking at in the gospel of Luke, that the great love and grace and mercy that God will come into this world, that He will send His Son, that He will live among such brokenness and sin, that He will give His life on the cross to die for our sins, to bring us forgiveness, to be raised in power, to, to, to be shown to be truly King, and to be installed as the eternal judge who will bring about justice one day. Remember the context of Luke 18, right? Jesus is on the way, his final journey towards Jerusalem, where we, are, where we know why he's going there for, right? He's not going there to, to see the sights and to visit family. No, he's going there to, be, to suffer, to be crucified, to take on the sins of the world before he's raised to life in power. God is, as we have clearly seen in his word, good incredibly good and loving and faithful and righteous. This is the God that we pray to, our Father in heaven. He is nothing like the heartless, godless judge of the parable. And so the point of the parable is this. If such a terrible judge will give justice, then how much more our utterly, astoundingly good and loving God? How much more will He respond to the prayers of his children. And so the, the clear purpose, isn't it, is for us to keep trusting in God, to keep praying in hope for the justice that will come when the king returns. Now, what is this justice, right? As we think about the prayer for justice, what is this justice that believers are crying out for? Now, I think there's two aspects of justice that is very clear for us to see that we can be praying for. And the first is the writing of the injustices that Christians in particular face. 
Jesus, as we know, was headed towards Jerusalem. Uh, and in the previous chapter, we, we read this, right? Uh, the first, as he goes to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And, and he's repeated this uh, prediction uh, uh, at least twice in, uh, in previous chapters. And we are told over and over again in the New Testament that all who follow the king who is persecuted and crucified will likewise face some kind of opposition, persecution, or suffering. Just as our king was to be rejected and persecuted and killed, so it is for those who trust and live for him. Christians have always been and will always suffer. Now, we are vulnerable. We'll always be vulnerable to harm. As we live for God's purposes, our king's purposes, as we live the king's way, as we uphold the king's values and his morals in this twisted world, as we strive to share the good news of the gospel and persuade people that there is only one true God, there is only one way to this God, and that is through King Jesus, trust him. As we persuade people, we will be swimming against the tide. We'll be pushing against the world's rejection of God, and people will take offense there will definitely be pushback. Whether it's uh, subtle or whether it's strong, there will always be some kind of opposition and persecution for those who follow King Jesus. Christians will face injustices. But we're called as Christians not to retaliate, not to seek after vengeance now and for ourselves. Instead, we are to endure and to wait for the king to return to make all things right. We're called to pray in faith and hope for, for justice that God promises will come on Judgment Day. Now, the second cry for justice is for God to right all of the injustices in this world that is faced by both Christians and non-Christians alike. Like, I think if we, if we were to just stick our heads up for a moment, outside of our comfortable life that we mostly experience as we live in comfortable, beautiful Brisbane, we would not take long to think about all of the, the rubbish and the, the, the disgusting stuff that's happening in our world, the injustices. But we live in a world that is wrecked by all kinds of man-made destruction. And we live in a world that's inflicted by all kinds of um, damaging and demeaning and discriminating and dehumanizing behavior, Right? from the, the broadest global geopolitical scale to, to our workplaces or to the school playground, and even within our most intimate relationships within our family and friends, we will experience injustices, wrongs, hurts that will, that will shock us sometimes and that will deeply sadden us. There is so much in our world and in our life and in our experience that just isn't right, that we want made right. So much that isn't the way it's supposed to be, that we just wish was the way that it was supposed to be. And God's people are to long for the, the justice that Jesus' return will bring, to, to, to cry out day and night with persistence, to pray faithfully and hopefully each day in hope that the King will return in judgment to make all things right, to bring in the kingdom of God in its fullness, in, in the fullness of joy and righteousness, and goodness that God will bring where sin is removed and taken away. That is the hope for believers. And while this passage is directed by Jesus to his disciples, I think there is something here also for those of you who are seeking after the faith, who are not yet believers here today. 
you are invited today to join in with the, the hopes and the prayers of the believers. Uh, you are invited to put your faith in the King. He has come once. He will come again. Trust Him. Trust Him for salvation and trust Him to make all things right, to join in with the prayers of believers. But there is an issue here, isn't there? And the issue is that of the delay. It is an issue both for the believer sitting here. I'm sure there are times in your life where you're wondering, it's been so long, yet Jesus hasn't returned. If you're an unbeliever, maybe there's something that you have a gripe about, right? Like all this stuff, right? It may have happened a long time ago. Yes, I grant that it's historical fact, right? Almost 99% of legitimate historians agree that Jesus is a real historical person. And beyond reasonable doubt, the things that he didn't say, yes, I'll grant that it happened. But it happened so long ago. Almost 2,000 years now. Really? No, is he really coming back? He came back once. He came once, yes, okay, fine. But is he really coming back? All this talk about Judgment Day and the bringing of justice, is that really going to happen? The kingdom of God, eternity, eternal future, is that really going to happen? Well, the Lord Jesus knows that this is what his disciples will face and what we will face. And so he carries on and he he asks the question, 7b, will he delay long over them? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Uh, two very interesting sentences here that don't seem to fit together, right? The first has to do with the delay. It's clear that a long time has passed. But Jesus is assuring uh, his disciples and assuring us that God is not dilly-dallying. Uh, it is not because God is some you know, forgetful dits. Oh, it's not that God will not actually fulfill his promises. Now, he doesn't actually explain it here, but other parts of God's word gives some explanations for this delay, and one of them is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is what 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, right? God, God will certainly answer our cries for justice to come, but there is a delay because God is being patient, wishing, hoping, and working such that more people would come to put their faith in King Jesus. And this is great news for unbelievers. And this is great news for us believers who are desperately seeking to share the good news with our family and friends and with a world that is still lost and dead in sin, who have not yet come uh, to know and be saved in Jesus Christ. It's good news that God is patient. But at the same time, many of us do long for the King's return to make all things right. Perhaps there are some in this room who are facing the, 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 the pressures of life, the injustices of life, in a greater way, in a more profound way. Maybe you are facing some deep betrayals and hurts from people within the family or in your workplace. Perhaps we know others who are facing all kinds of opposition and persecution from family or from governments in other places. Some of us do long and yearn for the king's return to be as soon as possible. It's strange, isn't it? For some of us, we have two seemingly contradicting emotions and desires. Not so soon, God. Please be more patient. Wait. Please come now. 
I can't wait anymore. Life is too terrible, too unjust. You know, we're right to feel both. We're right to feel both. To, to, to yearn for God to keep being patient and yet to long for His return to make all things right. And in this passage, God affirms both His long-suffering patience but also His assurance to His children that however long He delays, it will not be for long. So the issue then is, how long is long? And the next verse is where it's puzzling, isn't it? The first, second part of, uh, the first part of verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. At this point, you're right to be confused, right? Which is it? Right? Is it that he won't delay long? Yet it's been a delay, he's being patient, yet he will bring it speedily. Now, Jesus teaches us of God's patience, and that's why there is a delay. And in the very next sentence, he tells us that Jesus will bring justice, the king will bring justice quickly. How can he say this? Uh, how can Jesus say that justice will come after a delay, a uh, time of patience, and yet it will come quickly? Now, we go back to this passage in 2 Peter, right? So we read verse 9 before, so let's read the verses around it, and we'll see the bigger picture. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now here in verse 8, we see something really interesting, really important, and that is that God's perspective of time is different from ours. Right? 2,000 years ago to us, which is a long time, 2,000 years, is as if Friday lunchtime for God. That is two days ago, right? Just a few days ago, just a few hours ago anyway. The delay, it certainly seems long to us because 2,000 is a long time, long amount of years. But after Jesus comes back and brings in the end and brings us into the eternal kingdom, what is eternity compared to 2,000 years? Are we all mathematicians here to some degree? Yes. 2,000 divided by infinity, what's that? Okay, I'm not sure what the, the technically correct answer is, but it's pretty close to zero, isn't it? It's very, very small amount of time. So perspective of time. The delay isn't long. Now added to this, the idea of speediness isn't just conveying a short period of time, but it's also conveying suddenness, like a thief in the night, as Peter puts it. As we heard in chapter 17, uh, in the time of Noah and the time of Lot, People caring about their own in their life, living as if it will never end, living for the moment. But then judgment will come, as it did come in the time of Lot and Noah, suddenly, without warning. And so, when it comes to timing, Jesus is telling his disciples, telling us Christians, God will not delay long. It will come speedily and suddenly. And it's a great encouragement for us to keep putting our trust in the king and to keep having faithful hope in the justice that the king will bring when he returns. But it's not just an encouragement. It's also a warning, a caution, a challenge. Now let's look at the last words of this passage, the second part, uh, the whole of verse 8. Right? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... 
Will he find faith on earth? Right? He will come speedily, but when the king comes, what will he find on earth? Will he find faithful believers faithfully praying to God? Will he find people who believe that God is true and real, that God is good and just? Will he find us not just believing in the king, but living out that faith in the king? Will he find us longing for justice, right? Being so acutely aware that this world is so broken and that we're longing and yearning for Jesus to come back to make all things right. Or will he find believers who are just tired of waiting? Believers who have a faith that is shrinking and shrinking day by day. Will he find Christians who are calloused to the injustices, the wrongs of this world? Will he find us living for and loving this world more than we live for, love, and long for the kingdom of God that is to come? What will he find when he returns? What will he find you and I doing and believing and living? The challenge, the warning is don't give up, Christian. Don't give up your faith. Don't give up living and longing for Jesus' return. And the call here is for us to fight against all the things that will make us give up, isn't it? Yes, we cannot see Jesus face to face right now. We cannot hear him physically speak and physically act in miraculous ways. Yes, it has been 2,000 years. And yes, it might be that God takes it as just Friday lunchtime. But for us, it's a long time. Let's be honest with that. 2,000 years is a long wait. Yes, Christians will suffer. Maybe in small, uh, imperceptible ways. Maybe we'll be shunned by our friends. Maybe our, our families will go against us. Maybe we might not get that job promotion. Maybe we might not be able to live the lifestyle that we want to live because to do so would require us to sin and to love the world more than we love God. We might be missing out. It may seem as if life is going on as per normal and everyone else is enjoying themselves, living for the moment, and we are FOMO. We are fearing that we're missing out. Whatever it is that's causing us to to stop trusting or to shrink in our trust and hope in Jesus' return, God's Word tells us today, fight against that. Don't let that happen. Don't let it make you stop trusting King Jesus and praying in faithful hope for the justice that He will return to bring. Like I mentioned before, if you're not yet a believer here today, can I invite you today to put your faith in King Jesus? He has come. And he promises that he will return. Put your faith in him. He is the king. And he is the one who can save you and bring you forgiveness from God's judgment. And he invites you also then to live in the hope uh, that he will be the one that will make all things right. We all experience brokenness and sin in this world, whether you're a believer or not. God has spoken to us today that his son will be the one who will make all things right. So why not put your trust in Him and follow Him? Live for Him and long with all other believers for His return. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have um, given us such clear understanding of what you have done. We thank you for the Gospel of Luke. Uh, for Dr. Luke and his faithful gathering of eyewitness accounts uh, to record all that Jesus said and did. We thank you that we have come to know that the King has come 
that Jesus is the one who has done things that only you could do to show that he is your son, that he is your king. And even now, as we live 2,000 odd years uh, after his first coming, and even as we might find it hard then, or we might, we might wane in our faith, we might start doubting uh, your promises, your, your goodness, your words, uh, we pray that you'll help us uh, to hear your word today, um, for us to, to keep trusting the King, to keep living for Him, and to keep having faithful hope in the justice that He will bring on that day of final judgment. Please help us to find ourselves uh, on His side so that we may enter into the eternal kingdom where there will be the completeness of joy and righteousness and goodness with you. And all this we pray in His name.